I'm Representative Martina White, Chairwoman of the Philadelphia Republican City Committee, and you're listening to the True Philadelphia Podcast with Matt O'Donnell. The Republican Party is not only trying to maintain relevance in the city of Philadelphia, it is trying to survive. Once again, the GOP mayoral candidate barely registered a blip during a general election. It was so bad, Democratic Mayor Jim Kenney ran for re-election in 2019 by basically not even campaigning. He beat his Republican opponent, Billy Ciancolini, with 80% of the vote. And again, Kenney did nothing. Adding to the gloom, an independent candidate bounced a Republican at-large member from city council in the same election. The loser, Al Taubenberger, joked with me recently that, well, I'm not dead, but what about his party? Philadelphia's GOP is starting from scratch while it still exists. Its chairman, Mike Meehan, resigned right after the election. The party's committee then overwhelmingly elected as its new chair a 31-year-old woman from Northeast Philadelphia who has only been a politician for four years. And people on both sides of the aisle, well, they are already impressed. Republican State Representative Martina White of the Great Northeast on the True Philadelphia podcast right now. Here with Representative Martina White in her Bustleton office in Northeast Philadelphia. Thanks so much for joining us on the True Philadelphia podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for coming in. Congratulations on your elevation to chairwoman of the city Republican Party. And I guess the first question is, why would you want to do that? It's seven to one Democrat Republican in Philadelphia in terms of registered voters. Oh, trust me, I have received the congratulatory, uh, you know, messages as well as the condolence messages. And I must say the reason that I decided to take on this initiative is because I care deeply about the city of Philadelphia. And I think that there has to be uh, some accountability coming from alternative viewpoints. And I think that as a, uh, a person who has been a someone who has been advocating for Philadelphia, especially Northeast Philadelphia, I think I'm in a position to do that. So one way to grow the party, obviously, is to take advantage of the youth that's really been moving into the city, millennial generation. You're young, you're 31 years old, you're a woman. Why should a person with those characteristics be such a great person to lead the party? Well, I think that's exactly right. Uh, we have a number of millennials right here in the city of Philadelphia. More and more keep moving in because they love the city. They love the city culture, the lifestyle, the great food, and um, you know all all that comes along with it. Um, but I know that what what people don't like is the crime that's taking place and the unfortunate um, you know lack of educational options for their children, and that's usually the reasons that they leave. But for me, I think that we can kind of turn that, that tide. We can help to bring more people into our fold and make sure that they know that they have a voice in this city um, that they can count on to continue to advocate for their views and what the, what the party stands for. And I think you know educational options is a major issue, um, even in, um, in terms of our minority communities in Philadelphia. You know, that's something that everyone cares deep, deeply about is our children. And um, I think that's what I'm looking to, to help accomplish is bringing more people into the fold that otherwise haven't had a voice. When and why did you become a Republican? I think I've always been. Um, Your family are Republicans, family, right? Yeah, so, um, you know, my family's been 
just job creators. That's, uh, you know, what we, what I grew up in that environment and hardworking, very dedicated to family. And I think those are, you know, similarly the, the core values of the party as well. And I think that's why, you know, I just kind of always, uh, you know, have affiliated with it. Given what's happening in Washington, and I know that's a different place than here in Philadelphia, but do you feel like what the party, the Republican Party, stands for is getting kind of convoluted right now? I would say that D.C. is a place that I don't know that I ever want to go. Um, I, I visited once uh, or twice before for some of the different you know celebrations that they have, but um, in terms of the, the difference between our city and in terms of politics, it's not reflective, I don't think, of, of what we're capable of as, as not only a party, but as a, as a uh, city. You know, we are able to um, make change in Harrisburg, whereas in D.C. everything is just gridlock. And we see the value of bipartisanship as, as you know, as a Republican in Harrisburg. I've, I know where um, I can be valuable to our city. The House majority in Harrisburg is Republican. And without any representation in that majority, Philadelphia is put in a really, uh, you know, jeopardized or compromised position. Do you find it hard to separate the party as it is in Washington and party members who are in state positions like yourself or maybe in city positions in other parts of the country? I imagine that, um, you know, throughout history, there's been members of different political affiliations that don't necessarily like what their federal administration is doing or what's happening down in D.C. with their other colleagues that, um, you know, they tend to be affiliated with. Um, but I think in terms of, again, what we're capable of, we we need to compromise. We need to work together and we have to have bipartisanship where we can do more good for the people that we represent. And that's kind of what... Um, what I aim to do. You were the first Republican elected, new Republican elected in Philadelphia to any position in 25 years? Yes. Uh, uh, why did it take so long? I'm not sure. I think, uh, you know, maybe we, we've we had a tough time recruiting candidates. I, I think the approach that was, was given to me was that you know, we, we need to have a, a quality candidate running for public office. And I think every party should expect that from their candidates. They want someone who cares about the community, who's willing to speak on the issues, um, and who's willing to put the work in to, to be a difference, to, to show how different um, the options are out there for, um, you know, for public service. When there are no alternatives on the ballot, the people are stuck selecting the person that's there. Um, and that's really not fair. And that's one of the reasons that I ran is because I, I see that if there is no alternative, if there is no Republican Party in Philadelphia, um, then what is the alternative? And those alternatives really aren't all that great. Um, and I think what we have to offer is so much, so much more valuable than what's been provided across the city lately. Um, yeah. the, the lack of competitiveness with the Republican Party has been such that independents as of 2017 outnumbered Republicans in registered voters in Philadelphia, which is, that's a real black eye. Are you sitting here saying, yes, Matt, we are going to be competitive beginning in the next election in Philadelphia as a Republican Party? Look, the Republican Party is here to stay. 
we're not going anywhere. We are uh, moving our party forward in a positive direction. We are going to be getting more people to register Republican. We're going to be getting more people to run for office as a Republican. And it's not just a name, you know, it's all about the values that we stand for. And I think that's the key difference. You know, we are, uh, you know, the, the party of transparency, the party of anti-corruption, the party of, um, you know, family. Where are the family values here today um, in, in this city? We need people advocating for these things. And that's what I'm here to help voice those, those uh, values. Is the love-hate relationship that people, voters, tend to have with President Trump a problem? I, uh, I think it's good. I think it's healthy for, for democracy, for people to be able to express how they feel about their president, about any of their elected officials, without retribution. Uh, I think that's a, like a, a founding principle, if anything. And we, uh, you know, I, I think even when I go door to door and, and talk with people, uh, in my community, I know that you know they have certain feelings about what what the president has done. Um, you know, they usually say, "Oh, you know, I like his policies, but I don't like his politics," or you know, "I don't like what he what he says uh, in his tweets." And I and I understand that, and I I agree 100. percent You know, you, you're not going to like everything about every person that you come across, even your the the leader of your own country. You're you're probably going to find something wrong with what they do, um, and. I understand that. I know, you know, for me as a as a legislator, I know that there are people who stand on the opposing side of various issues, and I respect them for who they are and what their opinions are. I uh, I, I think that's what we need more in politics is that cordiality, that um, respect for one another, to um, be able to express your opinion and you know back it up with with facts, and really be able to communicate in a nice way that we can all get along, even though we have differing opinions. I don't want to overload on the president, but I do want to come back to him. But uh, let, let's talk about the mayor's race. It's only four years away. <laughs> Actually, less than that if you count the campaign. Uh, mayor Kenny, obviously, you won a second term uh, very easily. Do you have any dream Republican candidates to run for the mayor's job? And let's pretend that Mayor Kenny stays his entire term. I know people were talking about maybe he's going to run for governor. Let's say he stays his entire term. Who do you think would be the best people to run for the Republican nomination for mayor? Well, look, I, I couldn't say for sure who the candidate would be in, in four years from now. Uh, but I, what I can say is that right now our party is focused on, on building, um, on building out who we are and defining what we stand for in, in a in a better way that people haven't really heard in the past. And we have to attract more people, um, you know, people of color, people who, who have, um, you know, different, again, differing opinions and want to see the Republican Party succeed. They want to see opportunity grow in the city. We've almost been um, successful in spite of the policies that have been taking place in City Hall. Um, you know, when it comes to the sanctuary city policy, when it comes to, you know, basically anti-business policies, I think, um, you know, I've even just recently heard a, a podcast with David Cohen in it, and he was talking about how when people come to Philadelphia and they're looking to do business here, they are faced with, you know, 
do you know that guy in City Hall or don't you? And if you don't, then you're not going to really be that successful. And that's not fair. That's not uh, the way government should be. There shouldn't be this, um, you know, special buddy system where, you know, that's your friend and you'll get your way if, if you are their friend. And that's where, you know, I think we as a party really need to stand up and speak out and be that alternative when, again, there is no alternative, uh, that's where the issue becomes a really big problem for the city's sake. Uh, let me just rattle off the last Republicans to run for mayor. Billy Cangolini, obviously. Melissa Murray Bailey. Karen Brown. Al Taubenberger. Sam Katz, who was the last one to actually make it a race. This is true. Uh, so I, Sam Katz uh, was a tremendous candidate for our party. And um, I think even now he, he still is supportive but he, he knows that the, the city has changed. You know, um, There are a lot more young people here, and I think that's what we're trying to capitalize and build on is that we can be a party for, for young people. We can be a party for, for all different, different walks of life. You know, We are a very open um, and welcoming community, and that's what I think Sam was able to bring to the table when he ran for public office is that he was very open to different opinions. He was very open to, um, you know, being a, a welcoming city for business. And when you have more businesses interested in our city, when you have that kind of development taking place, you're able to provide jobs and lift people out of poverty. And right now, with the poverty rate that we have in the city, 26%, that's, it's outrageous. Yeah. The sanctuary cities issue has been a real hot button with you. You oppose it, obviously. Do you worry that... I mean, in your efforts to diversify the party, which would also help in bringing more numbers into the GOP, that the support of sanctuary cities will draw people of minorities away, people that might be interested in your party, and you're saying, well, no, we're not open enough for you. Well, no, I, I think that um, I think crime and safety are a top priority for a lot of people across the city. And when it comes to the sanctuary city policy, um, you know, the, the mayor implemented it, I'm sure, because he, he wanted to make it seem like he was being welcoming to, you know, immigrants. And I think our city very clearly is open to all immigrants. Um, what it's, the, the sanctuary city policy allows for, though, is for criminal activity to be um, permitted on our streets. Do you think it's that big enough of a problem for it to, for you to say, no, we shouldn't have a sanctuary city policy? The crime element, because some studies say that it's really not. I would say that when our law enforcement officers are not cooperating with our federal officers um, to help prevent crime in our city and allowing for known criminals such as rapists and, and others, and we've already seen multiple incidents over the course of these past few months of incidents where criminals have been literally released from prison after being caught and back onto our streets solely because they were here illegally. And that's a policy that I, I don't agree with. And I don't think that, um, you know, that's the sole defining, um, you know, calling for being part of the Republican Party. But I would say that I think everyone is uh, has a right to be concerned about their own personal safety and, you know, what does happen when an illegal immigrant, you know, rapes someone in our city and then they're released from from jail. That that to me is is not not fair. Um and it's not appropriate. There's a long-running belief 
in Philadelphia that the Republicans have been culpable in keeping the Democrats in office because they kind of get crumbs here and there and they're happy with that. Do you believe that? Have you seen it? I have not personally witnessed anything of that nature, but I would say that the Republican Party has been um, not led in a in a way that allows for it to be as outspoken as it should be. And, um, you know, I can't speak to what particulars may have transpired over the past, I don't know, decades um, with the Republican Party in Philadelphia. But what I can say is that um, the change is coming and it's here. We are doing it. We're putting in the work so that we can make sure that not only is the ship righted, but it's also moving in the right direction. And I think the right direction involves you know, diversity, being more open and welcoming to different ideas and, and really listening to the members that are already, um, already registered Republican, right? We have tons of people who are registered in this city that are affiliated with this party. And what input do they have um, you know, through our committee people, through our ward leaders? You know, they should have some input in terms of what direction they want us to take the party and what direction uh, the issues and policies that we're supportive of, um, you know, to help shape what we can do. You represent the 170th House District, includes Northeast Philadelphia, Somerton, Bustleton, yes. Far Northeast. How are the roads around here? And I ask you this because you do a lot of this. How are the roads? Yes. Uh, so. Prior to my uh, running for public office, they were not that great, um, but we have worked very diligently uh, with our local PennDOT district, who has been doing a really tremendous job making sure that all of the grass is cut on Route 1 to make sure that... Is that uh, a big issue with people? They want to see the grass cut? It was for a little while. Yes. You know, getting the grass cut has been a uh, top priority they, because they... they Take, pick up the clippings too, right? Is that well, another? So that's one of the things that the city, you know, well, yeah, the, the clippings, I don't know that they actually pick those up, but what they do is make sure that the grass gets cut, which, po which is positive. But then the second thing, these are very basic government things that sure. people should expect. But when things happen where the grass is like three feet high in the middle of the summer, when you're trying to have a birthday party for your kid, like that's not, that's not right. Um, but then also Woodhaven Road is another, for instance, was really, you know, it just had trash everywhere, litter everywhere. Litter is a major problem all across the city, but on our state roads, we want to make sure that it gets addressed immediately. And, um, you know, we had a contractor that apparently wasn't really, you know, doing it as frequently as maybe they should have. So we followed up and we, we kept calling and we we're like, hey, what's going on here? And uh, they got it rectified and now it's uh, significantly better than what it's been in the past years. But it's really, you know, government's supposed to be holding people accountable. If you get a contract from the city or the state, you should be held accountable for the standards that we expect in the contract that was provided to you. Um, you know, and that goes for our roads too, you know. Uh, potholes, why? That's like the basic <laughs> you know, thing a politician can thing. go and hack, right, is the, everyone's happy when the potholes are filled. Absolutely, especially in the wintertime, because you don't want to be going through those. They're brutal. You chaired the House Transportation Infrastructure Task Force, which it's designed to try and address these major problems across the state, aging roads, bridges, transportation. And you said part of the problem is when they divert transportation funds to non-transportation projects. What do you mean by that? So uh, right now in Harrisburg, the dollars that were supposed to be going toward um, our highways and roads, bridges, um, is actually being diverted over to paying for the state police, and that's, you know, statewide. Um, in so, generally wealthy communities, too, right? 
uh, all across the Commonwealth. Yeah. So um, what we're proposing is to make sure that you know we're no longer diverting funds away from where it's really needed. Our our infrastructure in Pennsylvania, we have one of the largest systems in, in the country. Uh, you know, we're in a great prime location across for the Eastern Seaboard for access for commerce, um, access to people, and what we noted in the report is that there's like five and a half billion dollars annually of need in our infrastructure um, here across the state. And if we don't chip away at that in some way, shape or form, we're just never going to get it. We're just never going to get ahead. But what is happening in the very short term is in 2022, there's going to be a $450 million shortfall for um, mass transit, basically. And mass transit is so helpful for so many families, um, people with disabilities, our senior population is trying to get to their doctor's appointments. And if they don't have access to that, it's going to be a major problem for the entire Southeast region and anyone who relies on mass transit. And that's why we're saying instead of waiting until 2022 when this $450 million shortfall occurs, why don't we try to incrementally address it over the next uh, couple years and um, make sure that those diversions that were also being uh, taken out of the, um, the transportation needs, then those are just completely stopped. We need to stop doing that so kind this of thing. Is, this is just a loophole that no one's really – tightened up over the years since that transportation bill was passed back when Governor Corey was in office. Yeah, I think um, in terms of the $450 million shortfall that's occurring uh, in a couple of years. I'm talking about when they divert to the state police. Oh, when you're talking about the state police. Yeah, so the state police diversion. Yeah, I mean, that was, um, you know. Like, who would have thought they would have gone to that? uh, Right, but I think everybody, I mean, I can't speak for previous legislative bodies, but I would say that, you know, they obviously needed the dollars and they allocated them over toward, you know, the state police, which is a very significant, um, you know, safety patrol across the Commonwealth. Um, But when you look at the need on the transportation infrastructure side, it's really, really um, being stressed. And why, you know, what are what roads are the state police going to patrol if they're not able to be used? So, sure. like, you know, there, there's a, you know, chicken or the egg kind of conversation there as well. But, yeah, when it comes to that $450 million uh, shortfall, the Pennsylvania Turnpike Commission is currently paying for that, but they're borrowing money in order to do it. And that's caused a $13 billion debt uh, on their end. And so we, we just can't Clock be... Clock is ticking. Exactly. And you cannot... Th- you know, rob Peter to pay Paul. Well, first off, you shouldn't be robbing anybody, especially because you you are the government and you should be trying to make sure that the budget that the people have allotted to you through their tax dollars are being spent in a fiscally responsible way. This is something that I've read recently, maybe over the past like five or 10 years, was a proposal to build a subway beneath the Roosevelt Boulevard. What do you think of that? I don't know. I, I know that uh, I can't even cut the grass. Then yeah, I guess no. I was gonna say um, no. I would say that the uh, Roosevelt Boulevard is obviously very heavily trafficked, and you know there's all kinds of restrictions that people have been trying to put in place for for years. I guess, um, but in I know folks in the Northeast they would love to have a direct line, uh, you know, like a, a transit line, other than busing going straight down to the city from up here down to uh, Center City. But we, um, I don't know that a underground option is feasible given uh, the dollars that it would likely cost. I think that 
it's it's like millions and millions of dollars like just to go an from upper deck on the Schuylkill yeah, Expressway. Well, yeah, um, but the but the uh, you know just to try to get from I guess South Philly down by the ball field to, over to the Navy Yard is significant dollars for sure. an underground uh, you know transit line. So going from here down to the city probably is not feasible at the moment. When we were younger, there was a proposal back in the 1980s for Northeast Philadelphia to secede and become Liberty County. Do you yes. ever heard of this? Oh, I have heard it very, very much lately. Um, lately? Oh, yeah. Um, Why do people ever? want to secede from Philadelphia? What are the main reasons? The, Probably some you've already mentioned. The main reasons are that, uh, you know, city services are typically not, they feel, you know, the people in the Northeast feel that they're kind of the disregarded child, if you will, of the city. And Certainly the most furthest away from Center City, where the government sits. Yes, this is true. Um, we are the furthest out <laughs> from, from City Hall. And, uh, you know, while we have a great city councilman, Brian O'Neill, who advocates for, for what we need here in the Northeast, um, I think it's challenging to see the policies that are being initiated benefiting uh, the people here in, in the Northeast. You know, he's constantly seeing the assessments going up the property tax assessments, um, you know, it's just not very reflective of the way that the people feel here. So what do you tell people when they say, we want to be Liberty County now? I say, hang tight. <laughs> um, you know, I, I just think as a, as a state legislator, I don't, I don't know if that's something that I can propose. I th I've thought about it for sure. Do you support it? I, I would, if it came up, I'd probably vote for it at this point. When you look at the numbers, even from the past uh, elections, you can see that, um, you know, the Republican candidate basically won for mayor uh, in a variety of areas here in the Northeast. And I don't know if that was like an anti-Mayor Kenny vote or if it was really a, you know, what, what, what the real feelings are around that. But when you aren't getting your voice um, heard in city hall you tend to feel that um you know the the policies aren't reflecting what what your family needs and that's what i try to i guess compensate for that out in harrisburg i try to advocate in harrisburg to offset some of the things that city hall is doing that is not reflective of northeast philadelphia so you would consider starting from scratch building a government school district everything else and not that you would have to do this but support these things that it would take to create a new city i i would do what the people of northeast philadelphia want you know i think that's my role as a state legislator is to you know help facilitate what the feelings are across this area um you know if they came to me with a petition signed with thousands and thousands of, pe of families and people who live here in the northeast um that was asking for um you know us to secede from the city, I would be inclined to propose legislation to do that. Um, this is a big chunk. I mean, I think mm -hmm. I've heard that Northeast Philadelphia is the size of Pittsburgh, mm -hmm. which is one of the you know, second largest city in this state. For sure. And, uh, you know, the, the tax revenue that we generate for the city is, is, you know, I'm sure significant. And I think we deserve to have um, the services that we pay for here in the Northeast. I read a Philadelphia Magazine article about you. came out a couple years ago. I'm okay. sure you've heard of it. It was titled, Martina White, the It Girl of Red Philadelphia, and called you the most pivotal and polarizing politician in the city. This is two years ago. Why did the writer say that? 
That's a great polarizing question. Um, I guess polarizing maybe in the sense that I present the alternative viewpoint. Uh, I present an alternative option for the people of Philadelphia to know that, yes, we can hold government accountable. And uh, secondly, that we can um, get things done that are not necessarily the typical, you know, tax and spend policy. Uh, we can actually be efficient. We can um, get the things that the people want done. And maybe the, what was the other word? Uh, pivotal. Pivotal. <laughs> pivotal. Uh, I guess it was yeah, pretty predictive because you ended up, you know, taking over the Republican Party. Right. That's uh, pivotal. That, that, there are some pivotal moments in my career thus far, and uh, most of which have been determined because I I deeply care about the people that I serve. This is, and I, I know I say this a lot, but this is where my family lives. This is where I grew up. This is where my friends all come home to visit their families. And, you know, it's just the community that I care about, and I want to see it be a success, and I want to see it flourish. And sometimes under the policies that um, have been presented by City Hall, I, I question whether or not that's possible. So. Did you ever tell anyone who you voted for in 2016 for president? I have not. And you know, okay. that's one of the great privileges of America is that we don't have to tell anyone who we voted for. I know it never, there, it's not written anywhere. It's not written anywhere. But most yeah. of the time people, do, like for instance, Senator uh, Toomey did tell everyone the night that he voted for President Trump who he voted for. But mm -hmm. you're just not going to tell anyone. Nope. Not even me. Not even you, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... You know, people are just going to say, oh, well, I guess it's probably President Trump because that's, she doesn't want to polarize people or whatever. What, how you, would you respond to that? Um, I mean, people can assume however they want um, about how I voted, but I, I think it's one of my own personal prerogatives uh, that I can vote for whoever I like. And um, I think that's also, you know, I, I went to a third, I think a third grade uh, classroom not too long ago, and I was teaching these young children about, you know, the differences between, uh, you know, Republican and Democrat and, uh, you know, voting and what is the primary, what is the general election. And many people, they don't even, you know, necessarily know the difference between the primary and the general. You'd be surprised. And that's fine because they're probably too busy working and trying to, you know, make a living to provide for their families than trying to worry about the difference between the primary and the general. But they are important and voting is important, and knowing that no no one in the whole wide world is ever going to know who you voted for is something really special that we have, and um, I just think that I have that right, and I'm going to use it however I need to when I, when, when I want. In personal experience, no one cared who I voted for until 2016, and I won't tell anyone either, Right. which is, I, I try to remain impartial. In fact, I'm registered independent, but it, it was it's interesting that no one cared until now right uh that that's a good point everyone thinks someone has bias right they try to read the tea leaves and they gather the information and voting for president is one of the biggest things you do in terms of you know going and casting your ballot absolutely and uh you know in other countries they don't necessarily have that right so um you know we should consider ourselves very blessed that we that we do and when we want to use that, or you know, when we want to tell someone how we voted, then that's that's our prerogative. 
You went to Elizabethtown. I did. E-Town in the house. Oh, yes. Our Blue Jays, <laughs> one of a kind. You were a financial planner before you ran for office, and I, I imagine you still do some financial planning for people, right? So, uh, actually, I, I do not. I was a financial advisor prior to uh, becoming a legislator, and uh, now this is my full-time job. I take pride in that. And, um, you know, as a financial advisor, I was able to meet with so many different people. Um, it was... I think right out of, I graduated in 2010, and uh, just after that, I went into the becoming a financial advisor, and it was basically the Great Recession, as it was called. Sure. And there were families who were suffering and having, they, they were struggling, you know? They were um, having a really tough time getting by, and to be able to go into their home, uh, you know, and let them know that I'm here to help, and I can work with them to figure out a plan, a strategy to get through these bad times and um, realizing the impact that I could have on people's lives was, I think, imp another in part reason why I decided to run when I did is because I, I knew that there were so many people struggling that why wouldn't I take this opportunity to help them, um, help more people be able to, you know, get through these tough times bring better paying jobs back to our area, um, make sure that their kids or that the family is able to afford to send their child where they would like to send their child to school. Um, those are the... You, uh, can can yeah. I interrupt you? You were the first person to go to college in your family, I immediate was. family, right? Yes. Why was that? Um, well, I mean, I I just worked really hard in, in high school and... It was affordability, right? Yeah, affordability. I, I really went to the, the, to the college that was going to give me the most money. Mm -hmm. That's what it came down to uh, for me. And, of course, you know, a quality education. But I think as um, in terms of self-accountability, we work as hard as we can f to be able to move ourselves forward in our career or our profession or in our life. And college is what you make of it. You know, um, anything that you do, is it's what you make of it. It's how hard you want to work. It's your own... Um, work ethic that gets you to where you want to be. And that's just a, you know, a core belief of mine. Uh, What's you know. the biggest thing people should, or legislators should do, and even college administrators should do to allow more people to go to college, whether it's affordability, scholarships, et cetera? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, lowering tuition certainly helps. And I think, think having a Colleges are bloated? I, I would say that right now, the and there's conversations in Harrisburg about trying to address this issue. Uh, right now, there are, you know, the FIA grants and, and um, just grant dollars that are offered by the state. But when colleges know that the state is about to offer certain numbers of students uh, of certain, you know, income levels, et cetera, that they uh, can account for that and then inflate their own yes. numbers. So it has an opposite yes, so, effect. Right. It, it has an opposite effect. And uh, you could say the same thing for property taxes, right? You know, uh, it's it's like the so reality of it. It's, it right. Inflate and, the and value so, of your home. So, exactly. So we are kind of in this predicament where we want to be helpful to families who aren't necessarily able to afford the college experience, but we also recognize that we're not going to, um, you know, continue to just allow for this price inflation to take place where it's hurting families in the in the long run. Um, especially, you know, you see today millennials, one of the toughest things that we uh, had been or are facing is the, you know, the college debt that they come out of school with. Yeah, you got socked with the 2008 collapse, mm -hmm. too. Exactly. Bad timing, right? 
Right. Let's talk a little bit more about the city. This year, 2019, it's almost certain they're going to have more homicides than the year before, which was the highest total in 11 years. What do you think is the answer to reduce homicides, gun violence, and particularly gun violence that has been targeting or victimizing children? So I think, um, you know, earlier we were talking about the family, family values, um, reinforcing that message, letting people know that um, we need to have a family structure that is conducive for helping children grow up in a great environment that they can um, have hope and opportunity constantly, you know, being surrounded by love, right? Um, but apart from that, what government should be doing, and I actually just had this conversation yesterday with a colleague of mine that are, I'm sure you're familiar, Jordan Harris, mm -hmm. and he's the minority whip. He, um, and, and and within his own community, is consistently facing these types of gun violence, the, the gun violence and the activities that are hurting our children. Um, the violence, it's, it's so sad. Every time I see another article come out about a, a child who's been shot. It's just so unbelievable. I, it, it's heartbreaking. And um, for the conversation that we had was exactly about this. How do we fix this? And where is the where is this government system breaking down for these kids? And it's not just young children. It's the and I don't want to call them kids because they're not anymore. They're adults. You know, there's 22, 25 year olds, 30 year olds. They are um, typically the ones that are, you know, conducting these shootings, right? And so what we had been discussing was a lot of times these children, as they go through their educational, uh, you know, experience in grade school, they're going through the DHS system. They're, they're, they're being um, approached and helped, but not well enough. You know, they may have, they have been, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. I don't know that. I think that families have the, the right to raise their child the way that they deem fit. But I think in terms of the education, um, that's being provided to these young children all the way through the DHS system that is attempting to help them, the people who are conducting the gun violence activities, they are, have already been through the DHS system. 10 times they might have been approached to get help, but it's not working, you know? And then, the, then you know, they wind up shooting someone. And like, it, you know, why is it happening? What can we do about it? I think uh, the other conversation was about how Solomon Jones, uh, you know, radio host had actually gone into uh, the, you know, uh, into the, this community and met with all of the fathers and found that you know there there's a willingness to to communicate and to figure out how to fix it and that's where we as government officials need to step in and help not only facilitate continuing the conversation but also to actually implement legislation or regulation and um, policies that will fix what's what's broken you don't run into many lawmakers state or federal level who are as young as you 31 years old and I was wondering, in terms of 9-11, you turned, you were about 13 years old when it happened I that day. In, yeah. I, um, I mean, you were in 
I think I was like in seventh eighth, or eighth grade. Yes, I think it was eighth grade. Um, because so we it, were. Oh, go, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry, I just sorry. I just remember it very vividly. Yeah. Um, I mean, the question is, do you see your view of what happened that day different than adults, uh, 40, 50 year old uh, lawmakers, and, and and does it mean anything different to you in terms of? like how you see government and how you see this country? I think everyone who experienced 9-11 probably has a different perspective on, on how it impacted them personally. And um, I would say that I, I can't speak to how our more senior members may have, you know, envisioned uh, or, you know, experienced that. But I can speak for myself. And um, I would say that as as a young person going through that, having a, you know, another student in the classroom, having one of their parents inside that building, um, th that you, I think we just get a different perspective on how important it is to support your country as, uh, I guess, and be positive about how far we've come what we're capable of and where we can go versus, um, you know, thinking that there's this, uh, such a negative outlook on, on how awful America is and how egregious all of the things that Americans have done over the years. You know, we can always look to all of the negatives, but we also have to look at all of the positives that have taken place and how we got through those times successfully and that how we have gotten to where we are because of the people that were there. And we should recognize that and be able to um, capture that through history and teach it moving forward so that young people can always appreciate um, those times that were tough and challenging, but impactful enough that um, differences were made and changes were able to be um, effectuated. Where is Representative Martina White going to be in four years, six years, eight years? Ooh, lots of planning going Two on years. right now. <laughs> lots of planning going on right now. Um, you already eliminated Washington. You say you would not be able to deal could, with it. I don't know that I could go down to, to D.C. Um, I think that is certainly a calling. <laughs> Your predecessor's uh, there, Brennan Boyle. This is true. He, he is. I'm sure he's having a wonderful time. Uh, you know, I just... For whatever reason, and you know, I'm speaking for myself here. Obviously, I just—it's all gridlocked down there, and maybe I can make a difference in that. But for now, I know that I am already doing really impactful things in Harrisburg for the benefit of our city and the benefit of the people in the Northeast. And being able to get things done is more my motto. I don't—I could—I just don't know how I could stand going down to D.C. and having things just sit there or, you know, so hung up on one, you know, one thing that all of these other issues are suffering because of it. And the people across the whole entire U.S. are, are just being uh, jeopardized because of the inaction that's going on. And that's kind of why, you know, as a state legislative body, we're almost obligated to take, you know, I mean, we, we do it anyway, but to take action because D.C. isn't, you know, we, we wind up having to do things that we otherwise you know, wouldn't need to do if DC would just do their job. Um, you know, infrastructure is a great example. They haven't done much since like 1993. 
when are you guys going to do something to help the states that you, you know, you went and created an interstate system across the whole entire U.S. and we were helpful in trying to implement it in, in the Commonwealth. And we did. We have an interstate system, but now it's time to maintain it and, and invest in it so that it doesn't fall apart. And that is just not happening right now down in D.C. It's kind of it just looks like mayhem down there. But I, I love what I do now. And, uh, you know, I hope to have the honor to continue doing what I do. I have a feeling that we're going to be hearing a lot from you in the coming years and maybe beyond. Very good. I, I sure hope so. I think it's all good stuff uh, coming down the pipeline for sure. Representative Martina White on the True Philadelphia podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you, Matt. You're great. Thanks to Representative White and her staff for their time. Thank you for listening. You need to subscribe to this podcast. You need to tell your friends. Check out our earlier episodes and stay tuned for many more. I'm Matt O'Donnell, and this is the True Philadelphia Podcast.